This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Later in the hour, COVID-19 is the disease that reflects all our social and economic illnesses. That's what Manuel Pastor says. He's director of the Equity Research Institute at USC, and he reports on who's got the dangerous jobs and who's unemployed, which kids have computers and internet connections for at-home classes and which don't, and whether Trump's effort to recruit Latino voters in key states might work. Also later in the show, Russian efforts to interfere with our elections. That's the subject of a new HBO documentary by one of our favorite documentary filmmakers, Alex Gibney. He's got footage from inside Russian troll farms and videos from the Russian deep web, which reveal the agents of chaos who are key players in our elections. Ella Taylor has a review. She's our resident TV critic. First up, Chris Hayes on the catastrophe of Trump. Of course, Chris is host of All In with Chris Hayes on MSNBC, weeknights at 8 Eastern. Before he went on TV, he was editor-at-large of The Nation. Recently, he spoke at a Nation magazine event with Katrina Vandenhuvel, publisher and editorial director of the magazine. She asked first about Trump and the pandemic. The first years of the Trump administration, I just think that all the signs were there was that we are, um, we were collectively as a, as a nation, as a people, and also in sort of a global sense, like playing an iterative game of Russian roulette. There was a bullet in the chamber and there was a lot of chambers and maybe we we're going to keep clicking away and we would get through four years without the gun going off. And we didn't. And in some ways, that is not surprising to me. In fact, that seemed clear. In fact, it was remarkable to me um, that there had not been larger catastrophes. And I think the real canary in the coal mine, the moment that I think in some ways a lot of the political conversation moved past it or peril was Maria in Puerto Rico, where we got to see a glimpse of all of the sort of worst pathologies and worst impulses of like denial of the facts, contempt for people that he doesn't view as supporting him, the bigotry and the racism and the lack of crisis management, all that came together. And, you know, thousands of people died in Maria as, as the president was saying that, you know, the death toll was 15 or whatever. So, we're now at this crisis point that in some ways was kind of inevitable or faded. Um, there's also a democratic crisis happening um, in, at, at two levels. One is obviously the abuse of power of the president and the sort of um, use of the tools of the state for the purposes of electoral advantage. And it's an interesting thing because that lies on a spectrum between incumbency advantage and outright criminal abuse of power. And, uh, everyone uses incumbency advantage, right? The, the bully pulpit and all that. The president has moved that spectrum towards outright abuse of power. And in some ways, the through line of him in elections is cheating. I mean, he, 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 he solicited help uh, in 2016. His, 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 uh, his number one henchman went to jail for a criminal felony committed to evade campaign finance disclosure laws, cheating. Uh, he is trying to cheat again. Uh, he was impeached because he was trying to cheat. <laughs> All of this is the through line. Like the guy doesn't believe in free and fair elections um, in his core. And so when you, when you add all this up, you know, I, I think the sort of 
desperate vortex dark feeling that a lot of people have is just staring down into a situation where at both the substantive level, independent of things like democratic health and, and rule of law, the country is objectively in a once in a century catastrophe. More Americans have died in the last four months than in any four months in American history. Uh, the economic contraction is unrivaled in American history. Um, we are starting to, we're going to start to see cascading effects of this, particularly if money doesn't come through for states and localities, you're going to start to see massive layoffs at the local level. You're going to start to see tightening austerity, cuts to social programs up and down the chain. People are still dying from the virus and there still is no plan to fight it. Um, the University of Alabama has 560 cases in their first week back in Tuscaloosa because they just came back to Tuscaloosa and didn't like, we keep trying the same thing, which is like, well, what if the virus didn't exist and we just went about life normally? And the answer to that is that does not work. Uh, that <laughs> we could try it as many times as we want. It will continue to not work. So all of that together, it does make it feel like we're, we're standing over the edge of something very deep. Um, and dangerous. And, you know, it's tempting always to ahistoricize, I think, and feel like this election is the most important, this moment is the most important crisis. Um, but I think that if you even in a historical sense, if you take a step back, um, there are a bunch of like macro structural trends that are bigger than Donald Trump that make this one of the most perilous and fraught moments for American democracy. Honestly, I think since the mid 19th century, Next, Chris Hayes took up the question, what is this election really about? Isn't it bigger than Trump? You have now a minority faction of the country that has been governing the country from a minority position and essentially is committed to using its power to lock that in to the extent possible. Has given up, largely given up on appealing to a majority of the country. Um, Six out of the last seven presidential elections, the Republicans have lost a plurality of the popular vote. If they do it again, seven out of eight, which almost everyone, like, it's hilarious the degree to which that's just a given. Like, no one thinks he's going to win the popular vote. There's, no one's had a worse run <laughs> since the Democratic Party is founded under Andrew Jackson in the 1820s. So that's, that's as bad as it gets. And yet, of course, they control the Supreme Court, they control a tremendous amount of state legislators, and they control the United States Senate. Um, and the Electoral College gives them a structural advantage. And as our political polarization has diverged along the lines of uh, structural, I'll get closer to my microphone. As political polarization has emerged along the lines, exactly along the lines of a kind of structural imbalance in democratic representation, you have all the tools available for enduring minority rule. And that's what is right now being fought over. That's what's being contested. Um, there's a reason Mitch McConnell spent all his time in this term getting judges confirmed because judges are a anti-majoritarian bulwark that they can kind of retreat behind, um, as is the United States Senate, as is the Electoral College, and as are gerrymandered uh, state and con congressional districts. And so at a very fundamental level, the, you know, the question in this country from the first moments of the constitutional convention is who should rule and that's the most contested question and the answer is well the people should rule well who's the people and 
that battle over who is who constitutes the vote, who constitutes the polity, who constitutes the people is in some ways a sort of central battle of American democracy, um, whether that's slavery, whether that's suffrage, whether that's the full and equal rights of uh, Jim Crow, whether that's LGBT struggle for full citizenship for, for LGBT people to take part in the institution of, of, of legal marriage. Like that is the sort of question. Um, and what, who controls the levels of, uh, levers of power? And we're at a very fraught moment where the project could kind of die. I mean, I <laughs> sound overly grandiose, but you know, democracies don't just last forever. They sometimes they just go downhill. Um, and right now, the democratic health of the nation is is very perilous. I would say that the, the the one thing on the other end, I do think like the street uprisings and the protests of the last four months have been an incredibly hopeful sign. Um, insofar as some kind of mobilization of that order is on, is really the only protection. Like if push comes to shove and we get a situation in which we are uncharted constitutional waters and uncharted legal waters, popular protest, people in the streets, a sort of refusal to accede to the whims of the ruler by the people that are ostensibly being governed is, you know, ultimately the kind of last, um, bastion of, of small D democracy. Um, and I think people having the muscle memory of doing that is pretty important at this moment. But all this by way of saying, like, I think it's as bad as it looks. <laughs> then Chris Hayes took up the question of whether we are in an unprecedented situation or whether there are any historical parallels to this election. Something I think about a lot is, which is both hopeful and unhopeful is the 32 election in Hoover. Early on, I think I tweeted something about, we're about to find out what would happen if Hoover had Fox News. And I think that's basically right. Although I actually think Hoover did a better job managing the first years of the depression than Donald Trump has done managing the first few months of the pandemic. Um, you know, if you look back, um, the 32 election, of course, is the, uh, most iconic blowout of a incumbent uh, in history uh, and, and is not really repeated, I think, until uh, Reagan beats Carter in 1980. Hoover got 40% of the vote, 39.75% of the vote in 1932. You know, 40 is basically the lowest it goes. I think Goldwater gets 38 or 39. Like that's, a, that's about the bottom. <laughs> of what you can get. The president's approval rating is about 41%. He's polling around 40, 40% in a lot of polls. Like, it, it, now, at some level, you think to yourself, how in the world could he be polling at 40%? How can it be the case? But then at the other, it's like, that's about as low as it gets. <laughs> like, that's basically, Hoover got 40%. So, you know, it, you, you, you basically can't, it's very hard to get below 40%. Um, so that to me is kind of a, like, a useful way of looking at it both as a glass, glass half full and half empty, which is like, holy crap, four out of 10 Americans are like, this is good. I want, I want more of this. I think this is, we should stay on this track. But also that four out of 10 Americans also thought that about Herbert Hoover in 1932. Like, let's keep it going, guys. So, you know, that's just basically, that's your, that's your baseline is four out of 10 people being like, 
cool. Um, so that I think gives me a little bit of hope, but, but, you know, beyond that, it's like, it's just, it's real dangerous and it's real bad. And, you know, we're not, things fall apart. Um, sometimes entropy wins and, uh, just exercising the muscles of democratic citizenship is basically all we have left. Chris was then asked by a listener, how can progressives push Joe Biden and Kamala Harris on things we think are important? Honestly, I don't like right now. I think to me, this moment is just like so perilous and fraught. And like, I I just think that like defeating Trump in the next 70 days is basically everything. Um, I do. I I just don't like it, it. And, you know, there's going to be a bunch of battles to be had about staffing the administration, which I think really matters a lot. People's policy. And I think who gets in there really will matter a huge amount. I think that, you know, Ron Emanuel's chief of staff was probably the single biggest setback for <laughs> forces in the Obama administration. Oh. Um, it really mattered a lot that he was the chief of staff. Um, so I think personnel's policy and I think that, that those would be big fights and important fights. Who's in the room? What parts of the coalition are they representing? And then there's going to be fights about prioritization, which, again, are going to be brutal fights. Like, this thing would drive me crazy about Bernie Sanders. Every time I interview him, I'd say, well, what are you going to prioritize? Well, we can walk and chew gum. You can do No, you can't. Like, you can't. Literally, definitionally, you can't prioritize everything. The definition of priority is that something comes first. You can't prioritize. Like, and that's true about legislative sequencing. It's true about what you put your political capital behind. And there's going to be, and again, if the Biden-Harris ticket comes into the White House, they will come in amidst crisis again. Like, it's going to be hard. <laughs> um, I think, you know, the, the, the big thing to me, the two big things to push on, the most important things to push on, or three most important things to push on are personnel and policy, forget deficits and austerity, forget it, write it out of your brain, treat the deficit the way Republicans do, we'll deal with it later, just don't worry about it, don't. And then the third thing is like climate, climate, climate. Finally, Chris was asked whether he found anything that was hopeful in our present political situation. What's hopeful is that people like the movements that we've seen in the streets are the largest, basically the largest protest movement in American history, as far as we can tell, like as an empirical matter. I think it's sort of hopeful to think that we're all that can save us because that's not like, doesn't put us in position of waiting for some other person to ride in. The other thing that's hopeful is like, again, like I said, 60% of the country doesn't freaking like the guy. Like, like we, we are in the majority. We have been in the majority the whole time. We were in the majority in 2016. We're in the majority now. Like, the, 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 the structural features of American constitutional democracy don't mean that you get to rule when you're in the majority. But it is the case that, like, he has lost a majority of the country. He has never governed for a majority of the country. I mean, if we were in a situation where you're 60% approval, we would be toast democratically. We would be... Erdogan's Turkey, we, like that. So, like, don't doubt yourself. You're what can save us in terms of like being an active citizen. That means like voting, getting other people to vote, 
volunteering, volunteering for local races, particularly protesting. Um, and also that like, he's not popular. So don't psych yourself out that he is. We're in one of the most perilous and fraught moments for American democracy since the mid 19th century. What's hopeful is that the movement we've seen in the streets is the largest protest movement in American history. That's Chris Hayes in conversation with Katrina Vanden for The Nation. You can watch or listen to the full conversation at thenation.com slash events. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. COVID-19 is the disease that reflects all our social and economic illnesses. That's what Manuel Pastor says. He's director of the Equity Research Institute at USC and co-author of a new report, No Going Back, Together for an Equitable and Inclusive Los Angeles, was produced in partnership with the Committee for a Greater LA. Manuel Pastor, welcome back. Glad to be with you. Well, I'd like to look at your findings about how COVID-19 reflects all our social and economic illnesses. Let's start with jobs. How come Blacks and Latinos are more likely than white workers to do what is officially defined as essential work? And how come essential work is higher risk than the work white people do? Well, uh, first, let me just say it's great to be with you. And I also want to acknowledge that this was a partnership, too, with the UCLA uh, Luskin School. So you know it's a significant event when USC and UCLA (laughs) are collaborating on an issue of uh, anything, but in this particular case, social justice brought us together. Yeah, if you look at this crisis, the share of cases that are in the Latino community are well above the population, and the age-adjusted mortality rate for Black Angelinos is twice that of white Angelinos, and uh, for Latinos, it's actually higher, and for Pacific Islanders, higher than that. Uh, and Part of the reason is because of the over-concentration, over-indexation of Latinos and uh, Black Angelinos in what's called essential high-proximity work. So those are things like uh, uh, healthcare, uh, grocery store clerks, agriculture, meat backing, which actually exists here in Los Angeles, et cetera. And those are the kinds of positions that Latinos and African-Americans have been sort of shuttle off to, and it's very high risk. At the same time, both of those populations are also over-indexed in non-essential, but high proximity work, which is like restaurants and hospitality. So what that's meant is that Black and Latino Angelinos have basically faced both ends of the economic scissors. They've, on the one hand, been over-concentrated in the kind of work that has persisted, but that leads you to have a higher likelihood of contracting COVID-19. But they've also been concentrated in the kinds of industries and occupations which have been more likely to face layoffs. So it's been the worst of both worlds for these two populations. 
I know you've done a lot of work on net worth comparing black and Latino families with whites. And I know there's always been a huge difference, but I was surprised at how much bigger the difference is in Los Angeles now compared to national averages. Please explain those figures and, and why they're so important right now. So net worth basically means how many assets minus how many liabilities. And for most of us, that's housing. Um, and you might have some retirement savings or something else uh, that's on the side. And the gap in net wealth in the United States between white Americans and black and Latino Americans is about 10 to one. That white folks tend to have about 10 times the net assets, more housing worth and other kinds of things, less credit card and student debt, for example, uh, than black and Latino folks in the country as a whole. But that gap is about a hundred times in LA. There's a difference between uh, where white Angelinos are at and where US born black Angelinos and Mexican origin Angelinos uh, are at. It's a striking, striking difference. Much of it has to do with high housing values here in California and in particular in Los Angeles. So if you're older and white, and you bought your home a long time ago, you've got a tremendous asset value there that's not offset by a large debt. But, you know, it's interesting, of the 50 housing markets in the United States that have a significant black presence, meaning, you know, at least 5% of the folks are black in those markets. Of the 50 largest of those markets, Los Angeles is in the bottom, uh, fifth of those markets in terms of African-American home ownership. And we also have very low home ownership rates amongst Latinos because a lot of folks who are immigrant, they haven't been able to amass the assets to buy in. U.S. born uh, folks, you know, will be a little bit more like me. They're coming from a place where their parents really didn't have assets, couldn't help them buy a house, et cetera. And so there's a striking wealth gap in Los Angeles. And to get to the other question you asked, the reason why that makes a difference is because if you're sitting on net wealth, when the economy shuts down, you have a security blanket to be able to get through a crisis. You're not gonna be desperate to get back to work, even if it's risky. But if you don't have that financial uh, security blanket, if a job opens up, you're, and you're called back to work, you're gonna to go to it, even if it's higher risk. And we keep hearing these stories amongst people who are in logistics, people who are grocery store clerks, uh, people who are in meatpacking plants who said, well, you know, I you know, uh, got called back to work and I know that it's risky and I know that I'm putting my family at risk, but I don't have the security blanket of net assets to be able to weather this economic storm. We haven't talked yet about undocumented workers. They've been hit harder than anyone else by the economic crisis around the uh, pandemic. Tell us what's happened uh, and what, specific, what specifically has, uh, has hurt undocumented workers in the last six months. Well, I think one thing that's a misperception that even 
progressive Angelenos have is that undocumented folks are people who recently arrived. They're sort of lightly attached to their jobs or their communities. In Los Angeles County, 70% of undocumented people have been in the country for a decade or longer. It's amazing. I'm, I'm, totally, I'm, I'm totally surprised by that figure. So thank you for that one. Well, and it's, you know, it's something like people like me know. If I was talking to you, you know, 20 years ago, yeah, it'd be true that most of them were recently arrived. But what's going on is that the undocumented population has actually been on the decline in the United States since 2007. The recession of 2007, 2009, got a lot of people to either leave or to not come to the United States. And then really the economy of Mexico hasn't been doing that badly. So less of a push factor and the fertility rates in Mexico have gone way down. So less young people being born, less young people hitting the age of 18, not as much push uh, factors has coming, uh, has happened in the past. So the bottom line is that our population is far more kind of rooted in the community. It's one of the reasons why, and you'll notice this in the report, I think we hardly ever use the term undocumented immigrant. We almost always use the term undocumented Angelino because they're part of who we are. And what it means then, because of this uh, likelihood of being deeply attached, is that 18% of Los Angeles County is either undocumented themselves or living with a family member who is. So there's about 775,000 undocumented Angelinos, but there's more than that of people who are their kids uh, or their spouses or their aunts and uncles who are living with them uh, who are either U.S. born, U.S. citizen, or a lawful permanent resident. The reason why that's important is because the undocumented population got frozen out of unemployment insurance, including the pandemic unemployment assistance, the $600 a week. Uh, and in fact, if you were married to an undocumented Angelino and you yourself uh, were a US born and had a social security number, that entire family unit, including kids, was left out of the federal relief checks and left out of the pandemic unemployment assistance. So we've been hard hit by that federal discrimination against a population that's incredibly important to us. And as a result, without that aid has been uh, more likely to go to work and actually also more likely to be suffering economically. You know, our theme here is that COVID-19 reflects all our social and economic illnesses. One of the most vivid uh, uh, examples is what you call the digital divide. Now that school has been online, we need to find out how many kids live in households where they have both a computer and a high-speed internet, and how many don't. There are some striking statistics about that. When school got shut down in March and kids went home, we took a look at the issue. And about 13% of white kids in the county were on the wrong side of the digital divide. They lacked high-speed internet and they lacked a laptop or a computer. Uh, the figure for black kids, 37%. The figure for Latino kids, 39%. Mm -hmm. So, you know, schools tried to respond by handing out hotspots and Chromebooks, but those are often pretty low speed, those hotspots. And 
the Chromebooks are not the same thing as working with a full laptop or a computer to be able to access what you need. So kids have really been struggling with this. And what this has created is really a period of learning loss. And there's a lot of folks who are quite worried about what's happening now that kids are quote unquote coming back, not to campuses, but to another year of learning. And when you're looking at the data, you're seeing that a lot of Latino and black kids are the ones that they come back, they sign on and quite quickly they sign off because they just do not have the same quality of access. And they're often living in overcrowded conditions where they're trying to carve out a small spot to be able to work. It's not like a middle-class household where a kid might have a desk in their own bedroom or be able to actually sit at the kitchen table and not be competing with their parents, although many are now. But I mean, for those of you who are irritated that your kids are competing with your high-speed internet while you're trying to work, but you've got high-speed internet that's coming to you at you know 400 uh, megs a second, uh, that's really different than being in a low-income household where, and you hear these stories, where mom left her home, phone at home because it's better than the hotspots the schools gave, and they want to make sure that the kid can actually access uh, their teachers, but they're not accessing it at the same quality. And this is going to create a permanent learning disadvantage going forward. And last but not least, of course, we have to talk about the election. Latino voters are more important than ever this November. And I saw a headline yesterday I wanted to ask you about. Trump makes push for Latino voters in campaign home stretch. Campaign says it sees an opportunity to win over Latinos with his messages on crime and the economy. Obviously, this is a very old idea that Latinos can be split from black voters around crime and the economy. I wonder what your comment is on Trump's chances of succeeding with this appeal. They're better than many progressives think. And there's some particular reasons for it. Trump, for example, is running a very strong sort of anti-socialist, anti-communist campaign in Florida, hoping to pick up conservative Cubans, Venezuelans, Nicaraguans, uh, people for whom socialism has a very bad name and for whom the idea that there's a nuanced difference between the democratic socialism of Bernie Sanders and the socialism of Fidel uh, Castro, there's no nuance that's going on there. The other thing that I think is really critical here that people are not paying attention to is that Biden barely knows the Latino community. This is not like a Hillary Clinton, regardless of what you think of her politics, had a long established relationship with Latino voters and so had relatively strong support. Bernie Sanders, when he ran, captured the attention of young Latino voters, right? And so ran quite strongly in Arizona and California, less so in Texas, where there's more conservative uh, Latinos. So Trump actually can have an inroad here uh, with false advertising about crime and uh, hearkening back to uh, the days in which the economy was working. The thing I think that Latino voters do know is that a presidential candidate who just spent four years promising to deport your grandmother, uh, Donald Trump, 
is not someone who's very appealing. On the other hand, Biden, he's running ads that have Cuban accents in South Florida, have Puerto Rican accents in the Northeast and Mexican accents in the Southwest. It's sophisticated, but it doesn't make up for not showing up over 40 years of your career. Manuel Pastor, he's co-author of a new report, No Going Back, Together for an Equitable and Inclusive Los Angeles. You can find it online at nogoingback.la. Thank you, Manuel. So good to be with you as always. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Now it's time to talk about Agents of Chaos. That's the new documentary from HBO about Russian troll farms and their efforts to interfere with our elections. It's the work of Alex Gibney, one of our favorite documentary makers. For that and other TV picks this week, we turn to Ella Taylor. Of course, she's a longtime film critic and writer for the LA Weekly, NPR.org, and sometimes the LA Times op-ed page. We reached her today at home in Santa Monica. Ella, welcome back. Thank you, John. Well, we already know a lot about Russian interference in American elections, or at least we think we do. What does Alex Gibney do in this documentary? Well, in fact, I, you know, I was expecting something completely different because Alex Gibney, you know, he's very given to excess uh, in his documentaries, especially his clanking scores, which make you feel that whatever the music is, you're actually listening to Wagner. Um, <laughs> but... Um, and he's made some films about some very extreme personalities like Elliot Spitzer and Lance Armstrong. Um, this is four hours of Russian hacking, um, thankfully split into two different days. Um, and it's a much more sober uh, and nuanced program than, than I've been accustomed to, ex to expect. He's a very, I will say, he's extremely adept um, documentary filmmaker. He really knows how to infuse drama uh, into any situation that could conceivably be dry. Um, this, whatever you may think in advance, is not dry at all. Um, it's opening on HBO next Wednesday, um, uh, the 23rd, and uh, will be followed immediately the following evening by uh, on the 24th. Each episode is two hours. They could be seen all together as one four-hour film, but I doubt anyone would watch if that was the case. It's, all, it's the result of four years of extremely intensive reporting, and obviously it has very timely consequences for November the 3rd of this, this year. And uh, he's got a huge number of talking heads who I will speak about in a minute. But the basic themes of the two episode um, is to classify Russian hacking and actually social media engineering <laughs> uh, of other of democracies in three different ways. One is interference. Another 
and they, they, they get more serious as they go on. The next is collusion. And the third, um, which comes to us courtesy of Tim Snyder, who is the uh, historian of fascism, who's really come into his own uh, in, with this administration or rather without it, is what he calls not collusion, but seduction. And obviously that's very apposite in terms of uh, our current president and, and, and actually refers to, you know, the wooing of Trump by uh, Putin and an entire complex network of, of conspiracies. So if we take interference first, that provides some of the most, how can I put it, uh, blackly entertaining segments of this whole documentary because it deals with the Russian troll farms themselves. Um, and he's managed to get hold of some footage actually inside some of the troll farms, which were begun rather ineptly by groups of um, smart aleck young Russian men and were then taken over by uh, Yevgeny Prigozhin, who is uh, also known as Putin's chef, quite literally, because he's often seen serving Putin meals. <laughs> Makes as much sense as almost anything else does in this strange world. Um, and he turned them into a functioning, highly sophisticated operation full of complex webs by which they would actually uh, intervene in, in um, uh, social media in this country and many others, including the United Kingdom, um, to conspire to, to infiltrate both camps in this, in this country, not just uh, the left wing, but also the right wing. And so not just the right wing, but also the left. And uh, these are orchestrated. Uh, now the troll farms have come together in what's called the IRA, which is not an Irish uh, <laughs> in, in agency, but Russia's online uh, influence agency. It's a very sinister um, outfit. Uh, and it shows in great detail how, um, you know, they've interfered with social media here. Now, most people will actually be, fam be familiar with the, some of this process because it's become very public. And it's been established without any shadow of a doubt that this took place, not just by the uh, Mueller report, but, but um, another one. Um, one of the most talkative talking heads in the documentary is a man named um, Glenn Simpson, who was a former journalist with the Wall Street Journal who oversaw investigation into the Clinton administration and has no great love for them, but still less for the, the um, Trump administration. And they undertook a, a whole uh, investigation of just how this um, actually took place. I have not seen the whole thing, which, as you say, hasn't opened yet. I have seen the trailer. And from the trailer, I got the impression that the Russians that Alex has on screen are a lot more interesting, sort of charismatic than the Americans who are sort of sober and uh, uh, appropriate. The Russians are kind of wilder and crazier and more fun to listen to. Yes, with the exception of our own Carter Page, who uh, <laughs> very <What>? far from. <laughs> um, there is in particular one Russian that he managed to get a one-on-one -on -one interview with, and we, he's heard posing the questions. Her name is Margarita Simeona, 
and she is the editor of the Russian state news agency, which is basically just the mouthpiece for the, the, the Putin administration. And she's saying the most outrageous things in this highly articulate um, manner. Uh, so she is really uh, somebody who I think he must have jumped up and down for joy when he got her to see because <laughs> she really focuses your attention in a most unpleasant way. Um, the others are notably, I mean, there are many, many talking heads here and um, some segments of this, as I say, are, are familiar, but he's also got... Uh, former FBI Deputy Director uh, Andrew Cabe, who is very sober, very restrained, um, but not restrained at all in revealing what he knows, because it turns out that the FBI was tracking these people as far back as 2014. There was nothing um, particular about Trump here that they had been on their track for a, forever. Unfortunately, they got stymied. There's also a, a wonderfully intelligent woman named Celeste Wallander, who um, is the National Security Council senior director, um, who is quite convinced that, that uh, uh, Putin was really had it in for um, Hillary Clinton, who was not very pro-Russian when she was Secretary of State. So they actively intervened. And finally, uh, a young woman named Camille Francois, um, who is a cyber conflict researcher, and she goes through in the most fascinating way how they the trolls set up a, a system. Uh, and they do it by um, creating local newspapers where they don't exist. <laughs> infiltrating newspapers that already exist and trolling them uh, and all kinds of other ways that she des describes in a very, very clear and, and uh, again, I, I hesitate to use the word entertaining, but it really is. Collusion of, obviously refers to um, Trump's collusion with, with Putin. I, had, I could have wished that the documentary would go a little deeper into um, Trump's obsession, fan, you know, he's such a fanboy for dictators and, and why that might be, but that really wasn't their subject in all fairness. Uh, and finally, seduction, which um, Tim Snyder is an extraordinarily articulate uh, academic, um, and he outlines the process by which you can flatter and, uh, and hint at rewards to come, which is the kind of thing that begins to involve people like Paul Manafort, Michael Flynn, and uh, all the other by now familiar faces. Roger Stone, I haven't watched right through to the end of the second thing, has not appeared yet, but I'm sure that he will at some point. So well worth watching. You may want to take it in stages, and you can, because it's, it will be HBO, and you can dive in and out as much as you, can, as, much as you like. Now, Trump's, um, Trump's defense against all this was, you know, whatever the Russians were doing, there was no collusion. They were not coordinating with the Russians. The Russians were doing this completely on their own for their own reasons. That's been the Trump line. That's been the Republican line. Does uh, Alex Gibney's documentary, Agents of Chaos, take up that argument? Yes, a little bit. Um, you know, some of this involves splitting a lot of hairs about what counts as collusion, which is why Trump was able to you know navigate that particular 
uh, problem other than the fact that he pretty much lies on demand. <laughs> there is that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, yes, again, you know, they do say that that uh, both Simpson's investigation, which is the, the engine of this uh, documentary, um, and the Mueller report established collusion. You know, yeah. however you want to redefine it, that's what, what took place. So... That is Agents of Chaos on HBO, two nights starting next Wednesday. Alex Gibney with footage from inside the Russian troll farms and lots of other <clears throat> fun stuff. What else do you have to recommend for us this week? Well, now I have a much more cheerful sounding title called Thank You and Good Night. And I don't mean um, the more famous Thank You and Good Night. I mean a wonderful little film that was one of the first that I reviewed uh, early on in my career at LA Weekly. It is a film by the local filmmaker Jan Oxenberg, who uh, she's from New York, but she lives uh, in Venice here. Um, she made the film in, in 1991. It did extremely well at Sundance. Um, and you would have thought that her career as a director would be pretty much locked in. In fact, it didn't take off at all. What did happen, um, she's certainly, uh, you know, she's a working um, consultant and producer on extremely reputable shows like Parenthood and Pretty Little Liars. Um, but uh, if you think about, say, the career of Kelly Richard, um, which really has taken off as an, an indie outlier uh, and was actually the art director on this film <laughs> very early on, it really is quite mystifying because it's a lovely little film. It's coming out on this week. Uh, you can watch it at film virtually at Film Forum. And thereafter, uh, again next Wednesday, it will be it will come to Criterion. Or since this, it was never even made as a DVD, you can buy the VHS version on on Amazon. I checked it out for one hundred and ten dollars. I'm laughing. <laughs> I, I'm laughing. Who has a VHS player anymore? You must well, be. Obviously, in my line of work, some people do some because people. they have their their favorite, you know weird films that they still like to watch on on vs on vhs yeah but i mean 110 dollars a lot to fork out <laughs> so please explain how film forum works as a streaming platform if you go to the to uh, filmforum.com or org you can it's very easy to sign on for it and the title is thank you and good night it is a film about Jan Oxenberg's dying grandmother, Mae Joffe, um, who was once a very robustly built beauty and uh, at the time that the film was being made was um, very, very thin and dying of cancer. Having said that, the film is often extremely funny, even though it's primarily a film about death and a very philosophical film about death. Um, Jan Oxenberg is a, was a comedian. I don't know if she still does comedy, but um, uh, she's a working filmmaker, uh, but she had a very uh, advanced indie sensibility. She's very visually inventive. The film is made not just with uh, home movies. We really do see her grandmother pretty much dying on screen, um, uh, but also cardboard cutouts of herself. And it's really about her family's response to her grandmother, which reveals a great deal of underlying uh, domestic tension. 
If this sounds very grim to you, it's not. Um, I mean, obviously, you know, her beloved grandmother was dying, but uh, much of the film is extremely funny and entertaining. It begins with the words, were you close? And we hear Jan Oxenberg say, no. <laughs> but she she's trying to get to know her grandmother, not only through the process of her dying, but through the, the process of filmmaking. There is a painfully difficult relationship between Jan's mother, um, a very glamorous, um, then a very glamorous, uh, Jan told me that she actually died last year. Um, but at that time, she was uh, as lively as a cr cr cricket, but the two did not get on, grandmother and mother. Uh, and that comes out rather painfully, but very candidly in, in the movie. There's a lot of unfinished business in this family. Um, and Jan's presence is, is kind of tender. Um, and uh, th there's a lot of... Um, of buried anger. For example, her brother, um, who I think appears as, as himself here, they've all got this very striking look. Uh, Jan had a very big head of, of red hair and her brothers are gingy too. So they're a very striking family. But he's much given to abstract and sometimes um, incomprehensible philosophizing that clearly drives her nuts. So uh, she creates a little cartoon rocket ship to take her out, herself out of the picture and towards and to, uh, it allows her to go to move towards her own death which thankfully has not happened yet um, and her presence is is both shy and tentative but also asking you know quite deep questions of her grandmother the thing that the film really shows um, is and I think this is true of, of many domestic documentaries that are worth their salt, is that there's no such thing as an ordinary person. I mean, here was her grandmother who had, from the outside, a completely insignificant life. She complains, she's very funny, her grandmother. Uh, she complains that nobody paid attention to her, and that was probably true in, in her life. And she's had many ups and downs. Jan's younger sister, Judy, was, was uh, run over and killed by a car um, early on. Uh, but she's very on the ball for much of the, of the picture. And she's fluffed out into this, um, fleshed out, I should say, into this very complex character that you really want to know more and more about as the film proceeds. The same with her mother. Um, she uses both real people and actors. There's a piece at the end of um, when her brother talks about his vision of death. They all go through their, their vision of what it's like to cross over to the other side and look at the world from there. It's very fanciful and, and inventive, especially the rocket ship. Um, and uh, she has this uh, uh, collection of extras who uh, walk through what looks like one of the subway tunnels of the New York subway system in their work clothes mostly and nodding towards the camera. And it's an extraordinarily moving scene, even though you may have seen it in other, other movies, there's something extraordinarily compelling about it. 
So um, I highly recommend thank you and good night. If, if you saw it before, I recommend seeing it again because uh, I reviewed it when it first came out and I watched it again last night and it, it brought all uh, manner of things to the fore, questions to the fore. There is a wonderful review, a lengthy review of the movie by Richard Brody in The New Yorker because the film played at a festival in 2018 and he wrote uh, an essay at length so if people subscribe to the new yorker that's definitely worth a read as well as a beautiful piece of writing we have a minute or two for one more recommendation yes this is a movie that is coming out in theaters uh, the vineland drive-in and a few um uh, theaters in Orange County before it opens on VOD in November. So I just wanted to quickly flag it. It's made by Sean Durkin, um, who made the wonderful film Martha Marcy May Marlene, which was about a cult, a cult leader played by John Hawkes. This is his second feature and it stars Jude Law and Carrie Coon as a couple um, living comfortably in a US suburb who relocate to the UK where he comes from because he's uh, dissatisfied. He's always dissatisfied, he's an entrepreneur. He rejoins his old firm, um, rents a country manor and she tries to set up her horse, um, her riding lesson uh, business and then things fall apart. Um, the reason I want to mention it, um, it, it, it's set in the Reagan era. So it's set, one of its premises is that there's a very different business and general culture in the US and UK. I suspect that difference has now disappeared more or less. Um, but this is a man, Jude Law is playing a man who um, it just, is never satisfied. You know, there's some rather glib uh, attribution of that to his rotten childhood, which if nothing else, um, gives us access to the great British actress, Anne Reid, is playing yet another horrible mother. Um, and I, I, I think what makes it notable is that Jude Law is a little bit like Matthew McConaughey, which sounds like an odd comparison, but both of those people were real lookers in their youth and have lost a great deal of those looks and in the process they've be both become really great actors um uh, jude law was as as a young man was always playing these feckless conniving uh people here he's playing a feckless conniver who's a lost little boy underneath it and he's really really terrific as is carrie coons as his wife so you can either um, go to the vineland drive-in or you can wait until it comes in november uh, i'm sorry we're out of time uh, we've also talked about agents of chaos the documentary on hbo about russian hacking of american elections that runs next wednesday and thursday and we talked about thank you and good night by jan oxenberg you can find it at filmforum.org this week and on the criterion channel next week ella taylor is our guide to virus time tv ella thanks again for telling us what to watch my pleasure one last thing, your Minnesota moment, news from my hometown of St. Paul that you won't get from Sean Hannity. Trump is spending more money in Minnesota than any other state, and yet the Trump effort there is failing. 
The new poll from the Washington Post has Biden at 57% in Minnesota, Trump at 41. Among white working class men, Trump is ahead by 23 points. But among white working class women, Biden is ahead in Minnesota by 19. And the New York Times poll says that among suburban voters, Biden is ahead by 20 points. Even on the handling of violent crime, supposedly Trump's best issue, Biden led by 15 points in the Minnesota suburbs. As a result, Minnesota today is number one in the change in Biden's chances of winning. This from 538.com. Between August and today, Biden's chances of winning Minnesota have gone from 72% to 87%. That's more than any other state. The second biggest increase was in Arizona, where Biden's chances of winning are 68%. That's up 12 points in the last six weeks. And then Wisconsin, where Biden's chances of winning are 80%, up 10 points. This has been your Minnesota Moment, a special feature of this program. Well, that's it for today's Trump Watch. I want to thank our engineer, D'Angelo Jones, and our producer, Renee Reynolds. As always, we thank Ry Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Hey, Trump Watchers, if you missed part of this show or of any of our recent shows, listen online anytime you want at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Trump Watch returns next week at the same time on the same station with more talk about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.